Today, it's our pleasure to spend some time with Dr. Sasha Batia. He's the FM Hill Chair in Health System Solutions at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, studying the appropriateness of care, uh, in particular digital health innovations and health service design to influence policy that will, that will improve delivery of care and models of care for patients across Canada. Dr. Badia, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, virtual care, boy oh boy, are we ever talking about that a lot in the arthritis community uh, over the last 12 months? And it's very interesting, obviously, at the onset of the pandemic, um, if people didn't really understand what we meant by virtual care, they do now since they've experienced it. Some of our patients have been experiencing it for a decade now, especially ones in Northern Canada and rural and remote areas. Um, but it is now part of the mainstream. And I think overall, our patients have had a pretty good experience with it. I think now we're starting to sort of turn our attention to what's next and how is this going to be integrated virtual care and the experience that we've all had in the long term. And I know this is something that you focus on uh, in your research, but also something that you delivered in the form of a presentation at the CRA's annual meeting, uh, online virtual meeting um, this year. And we're really interested to hear um, our audience to hear maybe some of those key takeaways from that presentation uh, and how that will apply to, to their lives um, living with osteoarthritis or inflammatory arthritis. Great. Well, thanks so much. And, and again, thank Kelly for having me on. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's funny because prior to the pandemic, I've been researching virtual, you know, care, digital health care for a while. And one of the biggest challenges that was always, people always said is, you know, well, do, are doctors and patients really going to do this? Are they really going to engage in virtual care? And I think the answer now is, is absolutely. Uh, you know, we have this natural experiment where when, in, in, in the research that we did, we found that during the first wave of the pandemic, you know, over 70% of the care delivered in Ontario, um, you know, during that first wave uh, was virtual. And it meant that, you know, although there was a drop in outpatient care that was provided because people didn't really know what was going on and they wanted to protect uh, getting sick, um, the reality was is we actually only had about a 15 to 20% drop in overall care visits, which meant that virtual care really stepped up and was a bridge and was a way for many patients, particularly those with chronic diseases, to get care, to get their medications refilled, to be able to talk about symptoms, to be checked in by their physicians, you know, and potentially move their care journey along. Now, you know, what, what was the big change prior to the pandemic? Less than 1% of the care, in, you know, that in, you know, in most provinces was provided virtually. And the big 
change. And this is sort of the central theme of, you know, what I talked about at the CRA conference was this idea of the cost of. So what do I mean by that? I mean that there always is an inherent cost of patients coming in to see a doctor like myself in person. But prior to the pandemic, that cost was all put on the patient. So what do I mean? I mean that if you think about it, if you have one of your listeners who may have an inflammatory arthritis, like they have, you know, um, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis as an example, and maybe they're a mom and maybe they've got two kids, maybe they're working, um, you know, at a, at a grocery store, or they're working as an essential worker and they've got to go see their rheumatologist. Think about all the things that they have to do to get that appointment. They got to find childcare for their kids. They've got to find, probably they've got to take time off work, find somebody to cover for them. They've got to drive down to the hospital or the doctor's office. And if it's in a city like Toronto where I practice, that's not necessarily an easy feat. And then they've got to like wait, you know, however long, sometimes up to an hour or more to see the doctor for a 15 minute appointment, right? I mean, there's a lot of inherent costs for busy, stretched people. But COVID changed that. What COVID did for us uh, was it actually changed the costs of in-person care and balanced it on the health system as well. Because in COVID, suddenly as a doctor, I have to worry, one, are patients who come into the hospital potentially going to get uh, workers sick? And not just doctors and nurses, but our front desk staff, our cleaning staff, the people that work at the Tim Hortons in the cafeteria, all of those things, uh, you know, are risky. Other patients in the waiting room, I have to worry about PPE. So then I have to think, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, PPE was expensive and scarce. So every time a patient came in, we have to change gowns and gloves and all that kind of stuff that has material costs particularly for doctor's offices, not necessarily in hospitals. And then finally, there's a capacity question, which is, you know, at the end of the day, I could only bring so many people in at a time. And so every person that I, I bring in, in in person means there's another person that doesn't get to come in and do an in-person visit. So I have to triage. So it has been this rebalancing of the costs of in-person care or the costs of contact that I think has really driven uh, much of the adoption of virtual care as a potential way of mitigating that cost. So that's kind of the thesis that we've been running with. So I've, I've got a question then, uh, as it relates to the costs of care for the patient, the one other thing I would add, certainly for people living with an inflammatory uh, arthritis and sort of serious severe disease activity, is the whole issue of mobility uh, yeah. and the difficulty getting to the appointment. And if you add all of the things up that you mentioned, um, there's also an emotional cost for the patient. And I'm wondering what your, what your research uh, can tell us about that emotional cost. Cause I'm just, I'm thinking that that person who's gone through all of those steps, all of those obstacles that you said to get to that appointment, 
you can't you can't expect them to have their A game for those fifteen or twenty minutes. And yeah. But the qualitative aspect of that very important in-person meeting with their specialist after all the stress that they've had to go through and possible physical challenge and pain and then to sort of be able to turn it on for 20 minutes and then and compare that to they've been at home they haven't had to go through all these hurdles does that mean it's maybe a, a a better experience not just for the patient but for the patient and the doctor I think there's there's some evidence that would suggest that, and and so let's start with the positive. You know, um, during the pandemic, uh, you know, being able to provide care that goes to the patient as opposed to care where the patient has to come to us can have some psychological and practical advantages for the patient. Here's a few. You know, many of my patients, you know, in the pandemic were afraid to come down into downtown Toronto because they were afraid of getting COVID. And on the other hand, they were also, uh, you know, they also have heart conditions. So they don't want to, you know, come on down. Uh, they don't want to miss their appointment with their doctor. So by doing this, we did, we gave them the best of both worlds. They got to connect with their, their specialist who was able to assess and reassure them or, or, or suggest a treatment course or change medications, while at the same time not causing the psychological stress of them feeling that they're gonna come down into where there's a COVID hot zone, so that was one. I think the second um, is practical, which is when you have a patient, like I have a lot of patients who are essential workers and we're working through the whole pandemic. And for them, there's a real material cost for them to, you know, um, take time off work to come in and, and see, you You know, like that, that you know, um, and so for them, and, 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 it, and then I also, because I, I'm at Women's College Hospital, my practice is, is still over 50% women. Many younger women have care concerns. Many younger women have, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and many others have other, you know, caregiving concerns. If you're an older woman, you might be taking care of a husband as an example. Um, for them, taking all that time off to come downtown and take a, come away from their work or other obligations was really hard. So when I could just give them a call and, uh, or get on a Zoom call or whatever and be able to connect with them, they really valued that because it didn't inconvenience their day and it didn't require all of the organizational gymnastics that sometimes goes into having to organize your life around appointments. And so, yeah, I think that there is real value to that. And, and, and just to add, I think the benefit on top, many people worry about the equity piece of digital care. They worry that when people, if people have, uh, you know, don't have access to computers or don't have access to technology, that they will be disadvantaged. I will turn that around and say, many people that are, you know, vulnerable um, don't have time, and uh, they they have childcare responsibilities. They have they 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 can't work from home. They have many challenges uh, in just getting to doctor's appointments. 
by making it easy for them, by either me calling them on the phone, oftentimes I can connect to them in a way that suits their life. And actually we saw a much lower no-show rate among, uh, you know, among our patients during the pandemic than we did prior. So I actually think if done the right way, you might even be able to narrow the equity access gap by removing barriers that prevent patients from coming into appointments. One of our public policy areas that we focus on is health inequities. Um, and it, it really is going to come down to the integration that yes, in the last 12 months, we've all been scrambling because um, we had to deliver care in this incredibly uh, pressure filled environment. And yeah. we did the best we could. And virtual care was obviously a very valuable tool. Yeah. Now what, right? Yeah. Like how, how are we going to adopt? Because I think the other, before we look at the health inequities, just the final word on costs is there's also the health system costs and potential savings that virtual care potentially can offer governments. And so governments, and we know it's not the federal government, it's the provincial governments responsible for delivery of care. They're now all looking, running around going, okay, what, what is this gonna look like moving forward? Yes. How are we gonna adapt our models of care um, to include virtual care? Something as simple as the as we've been talking about that that in person that clinical visit. What is that going to look like in the future? And when we were talk about health inequities, how do we make sure no one gets left behind? Yep. Um, I I agree with you that there there is a there's a very positive potential here, but obviously for the marginalized, whether it's low income or English as a second language or low health literacy or low digital literacy or no access to technology. Um, these are all barriers that the governments and the healthcare systems, we're gonna have to look at very, very carefully. Talk to us a little bit about integration. So yeah. that, what does that look like? Because obviously we get asked the question, we're not experts in technology, we're experts in arthritis, and we're yeah. trying to, to, to arrive at this intersection. We get asked about integration, and boy, oh boy, there are a lot of serious issues there that have to be addressed, and have to be addressed fairly quickly. Yeah. And obviously, we hope it's not just experts like you, but it's people like us who are also at the table talking about it. Yeah, yeah I think a great question. Um, so you're absolutely right. You know, um, it's difficult to compare what happened in the pandemic to what came before and came after, because we weren't really talking about virtual care versus usual care. In many cases, which was virtual care versus no care. So, and that's and that's a very artificial sort of environment. The way I, the, what I, what I do think has happened is we have changed people's perception of what virtual care is, which in my mind is just care. Like I, I think we, we will get to a point where I hope soon, where we will drop the just be care. It's just care being delivered in different ways. 
and and those I would use, um, which gets thrown around a lot, but maybe not quite like this, is in banking. So the thing about banking, when it started, when we started the internet banking and the and the online banking and the telephone banking, is we all called them different things. We said telephone banking and internet banking and online banking and mobile banking and then in branch banking. And eventually along the way, the, the first word of that all fell off, right? And now it's just banking, right? And if you talk to people, it's like they inherently know um, what service, uh, what modality of banking they need to service. Like, you know, for example, if you have to take money out of a machine, you have to go to an ATM, right? Uh, you know that if you need to pay a bill, you can pay it in your, you can pay it in the branch, but you can also pay it on your computer. You can pay it by telephone and mobile. You know that if you need to deposit a check, you could go to a branch and go to an ATM. You have to go to your own branch, branch's ATM, or you can deposit it by your phone. And you know that if you need to speak to a financial advisor, you need to book an appointment. The point being is, these are things that I'm sure when I speak to your thousands of listeners, they will intuitively be able to follow what I'm saying. And they'll say, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and that, that didn't happen overnight. That was something that happened slowly. And what it really was is it's not about, and that's the, the real point here. It's about how do we redesign service delivery such that it is, you, it is the right service with the right underlying technology for the right patient at the right time. For the marginalized, whether it's low income or English as a second language or low health literacy or low digital literacy or no access to technology, um, these are all barriers that the governments and the healthcare systems, we're gonna have to look at very, very carefully. Talk to us a little bit about integration. So yeah. that, what does that look like? Because obviously we get asked the question, we're not experts in technology, we're experts in arthritis and we're yeah. trying to, to, to arrive at this intersection. We get asked about integration and boy, oh boy, there are a lot of serious issues there that have to be addressed and have to be addressed fairly quickly. Yeah. And obviously we hope it's not just experts like you, but it's people like us who are also at the table talking about it. Yeah. So for an arthritis patient, maybe the first time that they see somebody is either in person or on video. Maybe follow-up conversations that are just routine could be done using asynchronous messaging or telephone or maybe video. Difficult conversations like deciding about surgery or deciding about starting a very difficult medication, maybe like a biologic, maybe those conversations happen in person because those are conversations where there's questions and there needs to be time. The point is, is not every modality is appropriate for every clinical situation. Our job now, and I always say where we are with virtual care, is we're virtual care 1.0. We figured out the adoption. Great. People know what virtual care is. Now we have to start to refine exactly what modality is clinically appropriate 
when and with what patient. And then we have to build in all the equity components. So, you know, either we figure out a technological fix to like ensure that people who don't speak English language can use virtual care, designing tools that make it easier for them. Or we need to ensure that there's equitable access to the right tools. The point is, is this is about building a robust system that isn't just about one door for everybody. But the idea is that we have a system that has multiple doors, but that combine in a, a, at a, a you know at an integrator site that allow us to ensure that we've got the right care getting to the right person at the right time using the right technology. So that's that's sort of where it is. It is a long road. I don't think this is going to happen overnight, but I think we we're, we're we're in a good start. I'm going to ask you just to follow up on that, that trust in technology, because it raises, I think, another interesting question. But I do want to just go back. Um, for about a million of the 6 million people living with arthritis in Canada, they're living with a complex inflammatory arthritis. The therapy conversation, particularly the advanced therapy conversation, is one that uh, is happening uh, every day and is critical in terms of the care and treatment and recovery return to life for a lot of our patients. You said, you know, maybe that's one that's best in person, but when you think back to what we were talking about earlier, how that person who is able to have a meeting at home without all the stress of having to go to a uh, a doctor's office. I'm wondering if that advanced therapy conversation, like, you know, you're going to, we want to talk about starting on a biologic. I wonder if virtually for that person to be at home, collected and calm and the notepad and have that list yeah. of questions ready, maybe that's an actually better venue than. Could, it could very well be. And that's the point is we, is we shouldn't have the technology dictate the strategy. Yeah. The point is, is it's, we have to, we have, I see technology simply as tools. Uh, you know, there are ways that we communicate information and we get information from patients and that needs to be personalized. Like again, in the same way that if you're at the bank and you want to pay your, your phone bill, there's many different ways the bank allows you to pay your phone bill, depending on your individual circumstance. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we often hear is that, you know, and, and prior to the pandemic, the truth is we were pretty monolithic. The only way that you got care was physically coming, whether you needed a prescription refilled or lab tests, you know, ordered or reported or have a conversation with your doctor is an in-person visit. And that was it. And now when you actually think about it, there's a multiplicity of tools that I think we could unlock. And we haven't even talked, for example, about asynchronous messaging or email, texting, that sort of thing, which I mean, for patients who are well uh, known to their care team could be an, a way to increase capacity tremendously. Because think about all the patients that have arthritis or on biologics or whatever, and they, you know, they don't necessarily need appointments. They can, if they've got symptoms or questions or concerns, 
they might be able to email in with a nurse or a nurse practitioner in the care team and, and really be able to connect uh, and, and feel very connected to their care team. So the point is, I, I think the point is valid that we have to begin to use and unlock the tools that we have to make life easier for our patients. And, um, and that might be an in-person visit but it might be a virtual visit. It might be a, a, an asynchronous messaging visit. Like there's so many possibilities. So I think we should explore what those possibilities could look like. So just go back in terms of this, um, this leap of faith, I think we all have to take with technology because obviously there are a lot of people who still have a lot of concerns and, and not really comfortable um, uh, sort of with a, a wholesale adoption of, of technology. And that is something that um, you and I have been around for a while, um, and we know electronic medical health records has been sort of that boogeyman um, that predates this discussion for decades. Mm. Do you think, and I'll, I, I'll try and keep you to a short answer here, just in terms of maybe pointing us in a direction, do you think uh, this momentum that has gathered over the last 12 months and the discussions that we are now having at the policy table are going to lead to a dismantling of the barriers of adopting EMR. I mean, I think EMRs are, are going to happen um, across, you know, and they already are. I mean, massive adoptions already. And I think that's just going to continue. I think the more interesting question is what are we going to unlock and adopt EMRs for, which is, is it just going to be a place for notes or are we going to start using them uh, in proactive ways as integrators of information, of being able to look at uh, data from, you know, think about this, you know, more patients have more data about themselves on their phone or on their watch than I have in my entire hospital record. How are we going to use that and unlock that in a way that can help them? So I, you know, I would say, I think adoption is one thing. Optimization is a totally separate thing. And that's where we need to go. Thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, a question that you and I could talk about for, uh, for the next half hour. But uh, this is now uh, marks the end of our, our interview. Um, Dr. Badia, I want to really thank you uh, for joining us today. I would also like to get a commitment from you that you'll join us again, because um, I think 2021 um, is going to be a very dynamic year. And certainly as it relates to virtual care and the delivery of care across the provinces in Canada, it's going to be evolving and evolving probably quite dramatically. Um, it's going to be part of this new or next normal. And I hate using the cliche, but it's true. Um, yeah, I agree. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. And thank you to our audience. Um, happy to see you here. And hopefully you can join us again next week for another episode of Arthritis at Home. Thanks, Dr. Badian. Thank you so much.